Helena is the real attractor. She's really the the moral center and the moral problem and and the challenge of this play. Her actions, desires, intelligence, they really drive the plot. It's very unusual. She's a doctor's daughter, and she's been educated in medicine by her father. She loves the noble son of the household where she has been raised, but she knows that he is way above her station. She pursues him anyway. It ends up being a much more complex and compromised journey than she had anticipated, but but she keeps at it. And as the title tries to reassure us, all's well that ends well, we hope. She's so modern. She's so energetic. She's so single-minded. And yet she also expresses doubt and seems to feel some regret even about the boldness of her actions. So I just really love her. My name is Julia Reinhard Lupton, and I am a professor of English at the University of California, Irvine, where I am also co-director of the New Swan Shakespeare Center. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Lupton about All's Well That Ends Well. This comedy, written between 1602 and 1607, has proven to be one of Shakespeare's more ambiguous comedies, as audiences ask, does all really end well? The play tells the story of Helen, a young woman who wishes, as she puts it, to lose her virginity to her own liking. She wants to marry a nobleman named Bertram, She uses her medical skills to cure the king and asks for Bertram as her reward. The king compels Bertram to marry Helena in ceremony, but Bertram flees from his detested wife without consummating the marriage sexually. Helena enlists the help of two other women in recovering her husband through deceptive but effective means. She tells the women, All's well that ends well still defines the crown, Whatever the course, the end is the renown. This play, so concerned with sickness and recovery, asks what it means to be well and to end well. How do we recover from our mistakes? How do we recover from the worst choices we make? The play shows us characters who need physical and moral healing, but may also show that nobody is completely beyond cure. Losing one's virginity according to one's own liking ends up being part of a much larger social scene composed of overlapping inequities, freedoms, constraints, and possibilities. And the play's remedies concern more than her own person. Comedy is often about marriage, but notice that the wedding occurs earlier. It occurs in the middle of the play. It has to be consummated and then validated. The play is about how you make marriage real. What do you have to understand and accept about the other person's deepest faults? What do you have to understand and accept in yourself? So whereas in most comedies, marriage is an ending, in this play, marriage is a beginning. I think even the title, All's Well That Ends Well, has a hint of the marriage vows in it, right? We say for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, can I stay with you for the long haul? Their journey, our journey is just beginning. 
It's comedy, certainly, but it's the human comedy. It's the comedy of trying again until you get it right and learning how to forgive yourself and the other person when you get it wrong. All's Well That Ends Well opens in mourning. The Countess Rosillian has lost her husband. Her son, Bertram, now Count of Rosillian, is preparing to depart for the French court as the King of France has become his paternal guardian. The king expects to die soon too, however, from illness. There was one physician who might have cured him, but he has also died, passing some of his medical knowledge onto his daughter, Helen. Since her father's death, the countess has taken care of Helen, and now the countess loves her almost as her own daughter. Alone on stage, Helen confesses that she loves Bertram, though the difference in their social class makes it unlikely that they could ever marry. "'Twere all one that I should love a bright, particular star and think to wed it. He is so above me." Her melancholy musings are interrupted by Parolles, a boastful soldier who is one of Bertram's closest friends. "'Are you meditating on virginity?' he asks, and they engage in a playful conversation about the merits and drawbacks of virginity. How might one do, sir, to lose it to her own liking? Helen asks. She asks him if women can lose their virginity according to their own liking. It's a really extraordinary statement. Usually the emphasis in the Renaissance is on women holding on to their virginity, safeguarding it even at the cost of their own lives. And here we have a woman who is presented as chaste, who is nonetheless quite interested in losing her virginity. Parolles leaves to go with Bertram, and Helen muses to herself again. Our remedies oft in ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. Perhaps the fate of birth and class do not determine everything. Perhaps she could remedy her separation from Bertram by finding a way to get to the court, where, she realises, she could put her father's knowledge to good use. The king's disease. My project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. The king's disease offers her an excuse to go to court, where Bertram is and also may win Bertram for herself by curing the king. She's not without qualms. She says her project may deceive her, but she can't do anything else. I think we're supposed to admire her, but also be a little bit concerned about the intensity and single-mindedness of this plan. The Countess's steward overhears Helen saying that she loves Bertram. Helen confesses to the Countess that she does love Bertram, but assures her that she would not wish to marry him till I do deserve him. She plans to prove that she deserves Bertram by going to Paris and using her father's medical teachings to cure the king. The Countess, it turns out, would not object to Helen's marrying her son. She sends her to Paris with love and praise for her success. The Countess of Roussillon, she's amazing. She's a widow with real responsibilities and also real feelings. She's definitely one of the most fully and generously depicted older women in Shakespeare. 
and she's present primarily as a mother-in-law and a stepmother. And these are two roles that often get painted in unpleasant colors in popular culture and in fairy tale. And so we have this very different, very generous portrait of the stepmother as mother-in-law. At court, the other noblemen are setting out for the wars in Italy, but the king won't allow Bertram to go. He fumes that honour will be bought up by all the other men in battle. Paroles, who enjoys posing as a dashing, capable soldier, encourages him to run away in secret. Lefeu, a friend of the countess's, brings Helen to the king. The king knew Helen's father, but he doesn't believe that even his great medical skill could have cured him of his disease, something called a fistula. A fistula is a tunnel-shaped abscess that can occur especially in the digestive tract, including the anus. Shakespeare doesn't tell us where the king's fistula is located, but there's definitely a sense of sexual malaise and, and mortal impotence. There's a folkloric element here. Many cultures tell stories about how a young virgin can revive an old man, either by sleeping with him or by being sacrificed to a, a dragon or monster. Her medical knowledge always seems to include sexual knowledge, and there's no exception here in this central scene of cure. Helen is persistent. She says she is not merely offering him human help, but divine help. Dear sir, to my endeavours give consent of heaven, not me, make an experiment. God can work through her to heal the king. If she fails, she's willing to give her life as the penalty. The king is awestruck. Methinks in thee some blessed spirit doth speak. He will let Helen try her cure. But first, Helen tells him what reward she will demand if she succeeds, a husband. And Helen does succeed. The courtiers marvel at the miracle of his recovery, and the buoyant king calls in the young lords, including Bertram, and tells Helen to pick whichever one she likes for her husband. Bertram's situation is quite peculiar because he, as a, a fatherless member of the upper aristocracy, he has become a ward of the king. And this was a very strange legal status in which one higher place noble person has the right to marry off his wards to the people of his choice. And so even though consent was an essential part of the marriage bond in this period, the ward's ability to choose a spouse was more constrained than anyone else's. And I think part of Bertram's panic and frustration in this play is his lack of control over his own destiny. There's a kind of arrested development in his legal condition which we see expressed in his juvenile attitude towards war and sex and love, is kind of baked into this strange legal status that he has. Helen tells the king that she chooses Bertram. Take her, she's thy wife, bids the king. But Bertram sees Helen as too lowly in her social rank to be his wife. A poor physician's daughter, my wife... 
disdain rather corrupt me ever. I cannot love her, nor will strive to do it. Helen tells the king to let it go, but the king commands, obey our will, and Bertram gives in. He and Helen are married, but when the ceremony is over, Bertram says, I'll to the Tuscan wars and never bed her. Wars is no strife compared to the dark house and the detested wife. The Countess is delighted to hear that Bertram and Helen are married, until she receives a letter from Bertram. I have wedded her, not bedded her, and sworn to make the knot eternal. Helen, too, has a letter from Bertram. When thou canst get the ring upon my finger, which never shall come off, and show me a child begotten of thy body that I am father to, then call me husband. But in such a then I write a never. Bertram will never acknowledge Helen as his wife until she holds his ring and is pregnant with his child, conditions, it seems, she can never fulfil. Bertram's behaviour has hurt Helen, but not altered her love. She's afraid their marriage drove him to the wars in Italy, and that he may be killed in battle. She decides to leave France in hopes that her departure will induce Bertram to return home. She steals away, leaving a letter for the Countess that explains she is going on a penitential religious pilgrimage. I am St. Jack's pilgrim, thither gone, ambitious love hath so in me offended, that barefoot plod I the cold ground upon, with sainted vow my faults to have amended. This journey happens to take her to Italy. There were hundreds of shrines in Catholic Europe, but there were really only three major pilgrimage destinations. That was Rome, Jerusalem, and Santiago de Compostela in Spain. When Helena refers to herself as St. Jacques' pilgrim, she's referring to Santiago, which means St. James. Jacques, James, and Jacob are all variations of the Hebrew Yaakov or Yaakob, which means to follow or be behind, but also to supplant, circumvent, assail, overreach. So although she's traveling to Italy, not to Spain, is this one of Shakespeare's little slips, she is both following Bertram and overreaching him by going against his stated desires. The scene shifts to Italy. We hear that Bertram, with Parola's help, has been trying to seduce a young woman named Diana and to corrupt her tender honour. Diana's mother, a widow, tells this to a pilgrim who has just arrived in Florence, who is none other than Bertram's wife. In the French military camp, the officers warn Bertram, as Lefeu once did, that Parola's is not the admirable soldier he pretends to be. They come up with a plot to expose Parolles as a coward. They will challenge him to steal back a drum that the enemy took from them. Then they will disguise themselves as enemy soldiers, capture him, blindfold him and question him. They are sure that Parolles will gladly betray their military secrets to the enemy in order to save himself. Helen plans another kind of disguise – she tells Diana and the widow that she is Bertram's wife and asks for their help in winning Bertram back. She asks Diana to do two things when Bertram comes again to woo her. 
First, to demand that he give her his ring, and second, to arrange a sexual encounter at night. Helen will then go and sleep with Bertram in Diana's place. Let us assay our plot, she urges, which, if its speed is wicked meaning in a lawful deed, and lawful meaning in a lawful act, we're both not sin and yet a sinful fact. She's clearly concerned about the ethics of this plot. She calls it wicked meaning in a lawful deed. And there I think she's defining Bertram's intention to violate Diana, which is wicked, but because he's sleeping with his wife, it is lawful. And then she says lawful meaning in a lawful act. And I think there she's talking about herself, you know, because she knows that she's sleeping with her husband. So she's not being unchaste. Yet the letter of the law may make this act lawful, but the spirit is still troubling. Neither of them is sinning, and yet it's a sinful fact. Bertram comes to beg Diana again to sleep with him. Give thyself unto my sick desires, who then recovers. Diana agrees to satisfy his desires if Bertram gives her his ring. He protests, but finally agrees, and Diana tells him to come to her that night. The women's plan works. In the dark, it is Helen that Bertram unknowingly encounters, and Helen who gives him another ring. Two French lords discuss the news they have heard, that Bertram's wife has died while on a pilgrimage. I am heartily sorry that he'll be glad of her death, says one lord reprovingly. The great dignity that his valour hath here acquired for him shall at home be encountered with a shame as ample. The other lord replies that the web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. Meanwhile, the French lord's plan is working too. The disguised French lords ambush Parolas as enemy soldiers and Parolas reacts just as they thought he would. Oh, let me live, and all the secrets of our camp I'll show. They question the blindfolded Parolas about his comrades. Parolas calls Bertram a foolish, idle boy, dangerous and lascivious. Bertram is furious with Parolas, and perhaps with himself for having been deceived by him for so long. They tell Parolas he will be executed for traitorously betraying his side, and he is stricken with fear. Then they remove the blindfold. He sees his companions around him and realises what he has done. The soldiers mock him before they leave him behind alone. God save you, noble captain. There's definitely you know, a parallel being drawn here between the dark house of the bed trick and the hoodwinking of Parolles, where a hood is literally put over his head. Parolles is being disciplined but so is Bertram. And what starts out as funny is really designed by Bertram's companions to reveal to Bertram himself his lack of judgment with respect to Paroles. At first, Paroles is bitter about his humiliation, but he also realises that the Lord's exposed real faults in himself. 
Who knows himself a braggart, let him fear this, for it will come to pass that every braggart shall be found an ass. He still hopes to make a life for himself in the world, though. Captain, I'll be no more, but I will eat and drink and sleep as soft as Captain shall. Simply the thing I am shall make me live. There's a place and means for every man alive. Parolles returns to the Countess's house and humbly presents himself to Lefeu. Lefeu always knew Parolles was a foolish braggart, but he shows him mercy now. Though you are a fool and a knave, you shall eat. There's a kind of humanity here in which Lefeu allows Parolles a new career, basically as a jester or fool. Parolles is not rejected. He is included in this social world. I think that's important. Bertram and the other soldiers return home to France. So does Helen, who wants the king to assist her in the final stage of her plan for recovering Bertram. Diana and the widow go along to help her, and Helen assures them that all their pains will ultimately be worthwhile. All's well that ends well, still defines the crown. Whate'er the course, the end is the renown. The king comes to the countess's house, where he and the countess lament the news that Helen has died. The king wants to arrange a second marriage for Bertram to Lefeu's daughter. A chastened Bertram agrees and hands over a ring as a gift to her. But the king recognises it as the ring that he himself gave to Helen, and that she swore she would never take off except to give it to Bertram in bed. Bertram protests that an Italian woman gave him the ring. Diana now arrives and claims Bertram for her husband. He seduced her, she says, by vowing to marry her when his wife died. Bertram denies this, but then Diana reveals the ring that he gave her. Bertram admits that he gave her his ring and that she gave him the first ring. The king asks where Diana got the ring that he had given to Helen. In response, Diana offers a riddle. He knows himself my bed he hath defiled, and at that time he got his wife with child. Dead though she be, she feels her young one kick. So there's my riddle, one that's dead is quick, and now behold the meaning. Helen enters and is often visibly pregnant in performance. "'Tis but the shadow of a wife you see, the name and not the thing,' Helen says. "'Both, both, oh, pardon!' Bertram cries. Helen reads his letter. "'This it says, when from my finger you can get this ring and are by me with child, etc., this is done. Will you be mine now, you are doubly one?' Bertram responds, If she, my liege, can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly. It's strange that this statement is prefaced with a conditional rather than being an outright declaration of love. But keep in mind that she's still speaking in riddles and they still have some talking to do. So knowing clearly what actually happened will be a shared task 
that will involve conversation and also renewed intimacy. He's less equivocal a few lines earlier. Earlier, she says, "'Tis but the shadow of a wife you see, the name and not the thing. And his response is brief and powerful. He says, both, both, oh pardon. He asks for her forgiveness, which is very big. So this need to know clearly before loving dearly, I think is in response to her riddle, rather than questioning his fidelity to her person. He's been setting conditions for their marriage since the middle of the play. This is a final condition and one that we're very confident that she can meet. The king delivers the final words of the play. All yet seems well, and if it ends so meet, the bitter past more welcome is the sweet. In our next episode, we'll discuss the importance of these oppositions, bitter and sweet, good and ill, sick and well, as Shakespeare searches in this play for a dramatic form that captures the mingled character of human life. There's a famous line about life as a mingled yarn, good and ill together. You can feel Shakespeare working with the image of the mingled yarn, making it into a moral pattern traced by his characters both alone and together. They can only heal themselves by healing each other. And whenever you're healed by someone or something else, you are in the presence of grace. Grace.